Hello, and welcome to the traffic episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. Emily Peck of Axios is also here. Hi. We're joined by Elizabeth Spires, the editor of Gawker, amongst other things, or one of the former editors of Gawker. Hello. And we are joined by Ben Smith. Ben Smith, welcome. Thank you for having me. Ben, you are joining us on an auspicious day. We have all manner of media news in the world. We obviously are going to talk about Tucker Carlson on this show. We're going to talk about BuzzFeed News, which closed down. BuzzFeed News was started by you. You are the former editor of BuzzFeed News. You have had a storied career at various different media outlets. Um, But what are you running now? And um, introduce yourself. I'm the the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, a new news organization dedicated to transparent journalism and, and to trying to help people navigate this very complicated moment when it's very difficult to figure out who you can trust. And I'm, and I'm sort of caught between the moments because I've just finished writing this book. What is the book? The book is called Traffic, and it's essentially the origin story of this, this digital age, or at least of the digital age that just came and went, the social media age. So we're going to talk about the book and all of the little tentacles that have come out from it over the past week. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Wow. Ben, you picked the best week to publish this book. Congratulations on being very, like, on the news cycle. Um, What is the most relevant news article for your book right now? Is it the official death of BuzzFeed News, or is it the defenestration of Tucker Carlson? I mean, the book really is about the end of an era, and, and I think we could all feel that. I mean, even when I started writing it in 2020, that the sort of moment defined by this sort of out of control social media was, was ending. It did feel this week like, that. you know, I mean, I think BuzzFeed News, you know, for better and for worse, was really a defining news outlet of it. And I'm obviously feel really sad about it being shut down um, and think we probably could have done some things differently, but also, you know, our project was to build a news organization for the social web, and I don't think we anticipated the social web kind of going away to the extent that it has. And and Tucker Carlson and this wave of right-wing populism that he kind of embodied, in some ways, were the you know represented the culmination of this whole project, and also the thing that made it so toxic to so many people. Well, is it that the social web has gone away, or the as I think you've said yourself, the marriage of news and the social web has gone away. Like for a while, especially a place like BuzzFeed News, you thought the two fit really well together. You do great journalism, you'd put it out on social, it would get traffic that way. But now we're seeing sites like the New York Times, sites with homepages that people go to, legacy sites. That's where the, the Huffington Post, the bit that survived, you know, gets a lot of homepage traffic. But this is the th- part of the book that I found most fascinating, that the people who have succeeded in marrying news and social in the, in the 2020s is basically Tucker Carlson's site, The Daily Wire. It's the right-wingers. There's a lot of that kind of... Um, there's a lot of cameos in this book from Andrew Breitbart, Ben Shapiro, people like that. They seem to have survived where, you know, BuzzFeed News failed. 
You know, I'm, I, I guess I would, I, I think, I think like Emily's drawing a very good distinction, which is to say the marriage between news and the social web really clearly is at this point pretty close to over. But a big factor in that is the decline of these, of, you know, Facebook broadly as a cultural force, mm. of Twitter broadly as a cultural force. I'm not sure how relevant Pinterest still is, but there was a period when it was very important. I mean, I think that that kind of consumption and the notion that you share things everywhere you know, has been replaced in various ways by going to the New York Times app, by consuming TikTok, which isn't for most of its users kind of fundamentally a social platform. Um, so I just think the culture has has shifted pretty deeply. And, and I, I think, I mean, I don't think Tucker Carlson and his style of politics are really thriving, succeeding right now either. Like clearly there, and I think the, you know, the style of right-wing populism that he and Trump embodied, you know, you know, really came to power in 2016. And use these same tools in a really unfettered way. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think part of the reason that people spend less time, time on Facebook and Twitter is because they're overtaken by this incredibly screamy, alienating style of politics. So you would say that that period of Ben Shapiro being a, a force in, you know, being an electoral force, being a social force, but having lots of traffic, having lots of influence, um, that period too is over? So Ben Shapiro, I think it's interesting you mentioned Ben Shapiro because I, I, what he he got off the social web. Like he, they used Facebook. I mean, they used Facebook very effectively. But he is now running a subscription video site that is has users is who pay him directly to go visit it. Um, I think he is actually a survivor and is thriving. And when you think about who could plausibly afford to employ Tucker Carlson, the Daily Wire is one of the companies that could. Although they're a different style of, they're not. I don't. I don't really see them as part of that movement. They're not. They're not really populists. Well, I, I would say, you know, also Ben Shapiro still gets a lot of traffic to the primary website from Facebook. In fact, you know, Kevin Roos has been doing this thing where he's charting, you know, the people who are driving some of the most traffic and shares from Facebook. And Ben is always in the top 10. So, and, you know, maybe some of that is a function of Ben's politics appealing to uh, Facebook's audience, which now is overwhelmingly in the U.S. kind of uh, skewing a little bit older than it certainly it did in the beginning. Um, what do you make of that? You know, if you're saying, you know, that news and social have been decoupled, it's, it's you know, I, I think that's probably true for news sites that target younger users. But if you're looking at the Ben Shapiro demographic, which skews a little bit more boomer, how are they finding people like Ben Shapiro? Um, well, I think, I mean, everybody's traffic from Facebook is down. I mean, I haven't specifically looked at, at the Daily Wires, but but in a way, they, you know, they shifted to using Facebook the way, like, Disney uses Facebook as a marketing engine for its real businesses, not as the distribution, not as its core distribution. Um, yeah, but, but I agree with you that older, that, that what's left of Facebook is older, you know, and this has been true for this point, what, like seven years, is older and more progressively older and more right wing. One point, Ben, that you make in the book um, and sort of like the tragedy of the book, I think is, and, and I think I can tie this back to Tucker Carlson. Great. Is how um, <laughs> the tools, <laughs> the tools sort of innovated and the methods innovated by Jonah Peretti, the founder of Buzzfeed, you know, making um, very sociable, social, shareable content, stuff that people have to share and show each other, those tools were sort of co-opted by 
the right and the daily wire. Um, and they, they were like, knew, knew no boundaries when it came to like creating things that people had to share or, you know, click on or whatever. Um, because there weren't the journalistic standards there that you have in news, you know, not every news story is going to be shareable, but you can make. Breitbart is the, I mean, the Daily Wire is sort of an outlier. Okay. So Breitbart feels to me like the core example. Yeah. Yeah, So Breitbart. And I mean, and the way I think about it and tie it to Fox News or someone like Tucker Carlson is like, if you don't care about journalism or ethics or standards and you know how attention works and you know what people like, which is often almost always not what you think is important or news, like you're going to get the attention, you're going to get the traffic. It's like you get the fire hose. It's all you like go f- that. That's what Tucker Carlson was doing. Well, yeah. And you can be famously a, a pair of you can famously be just a pair of teenagers in Macedonia. You don't even need to be Tucker Carlson. You yeah. Can be anyone with no real ethics. But, but, the, but Ben, you mentioned Breitbart, who is a really fascinating character in your book. Um, who was, explain a little bit about the relationship between Andrew Breitbart and Arianna Huffington, because this one is perennially fascinating to me. Yeah, and this, I would say, like, this is one of these things where you really had to be there. Fortunately, we were all there. But (laughs) to think that if you're going to start a left-wing website, it makes sense to hire someone from a right-wing website. Like, why would you do that? And the answer is because, like, we're all websites, like blogs. Like, this is this tiny little world of blogs, and you have more in common with the other bloggers than you do with those, you know, people out in the, in, in the, dig- in the, in the non-digital world. And so Ariana is looking to start a left-wing rival to the Drudge Report, basically. And so naturally tries to pick off Matt Drudge's deputy, who, by the way, also used to work for her in her recently past conservative life in California. Um, and and those lines, I mean, society is so di- politically divided now. And it was, it was just less that. It was less, it was a less politically polarized society and moment. And so it just seems slightly less insane that you would go and pick up and, and hire from the explicitly opposite ideological side in order to fight them. I mean, still quite insane and did not work out. Yeah, I mean, I think of Ariana kind of as a little bit centrist, though. And I, and I think there there is a conventional wisdom in centrist, particularly political media, that if you skew toward the middle, you're going to get a bigger audience because you'll get some conservatives and some liberals. And I, I think that's kind of project. not really correct logic, but I, I think that that was part of the thinking, you know? Well, I mean, but Huffington Post, I mean, they'd had a meeting after, you know, after Kerry lost in 04 and said, we want to build a website to beat Bush, to, you know, to beat the Republicans and help the Democrats win. So, I mean, I don't know ideologically, I mean, it was definitely a partisan project. And then it became really a Barack Obama project in the, in the primary, which again, I don't think was necessarily because they were, as you say, like less or more centrist, but it was definitely, it was of the kind of cultural left in that way, when that was the, when, when that was who Obama was. The George Clooney lift. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. um, but tell me, like, who, who deserves the credit for it? Because eventually, you know, BuzzFeed and Huffington Post ended up merging and they had two newsrooms in one small and struggling company and that never felt particularly sustainable. And eventually the newsroom that ended up getting killed off was BuzzFeed News rather than... HuffPost. And the 
reason, as I think we've suggested, I think, tell me if you would disagree with that, with this, but the reason I would say is because it's precisely what Emily said is that HuffPost has homepage traffic and has a brand and people kind of know what it stands for in the way that um, BuzzFeed News was more reliant on social. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's more broadly, it's, we're in this totally bizarre moment where the social web, and particularly Facebook, has just receded for news publishers to such a degree. And and kind of what's left is the internet of 2007, is you know people who are 15 years older but are still going to drudgereport.com and huffingtonpost.com to see what's happening on these homepages that never really did go away. Yahoo remains a place people go for and, news. I and mean, would, it be, and it's even, would I mean, it be fair just to, just to like end that thought, would it be fair to suggest that the architect of that Huffington Post homepage and the idea, the reason why people come back, even though he was at the other end of the political spectrum and failed out very quickly, was actually Andrew Breitbart. And that if Huffington Post has that longevity, it really is because, you know, if you're looking to the co-founders, it's because of Andrew Breitbart more than it is of because of Jonah Peretti. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think. I actually think Breitbart did not wind up really designing much or contributing much. I mean, they kind of cloned the look of, of, of the Drudge Reports webpage, but he was not, as they say, a cultural fit and, and didn't stick around, I don't think, even to, la- to the time they launched. But I don't think well, I've, the culture at HuffPost is very much centered on that homepage. Um, I, having yes. worked there, um, it's all about who's getting the splash. That's like the big story at the top. And they're always trying to be like really creative with the splash. And um, there's a, a big team on the homepage. And one thing that was different between HuffPost and BuzzFeed, and maybe this is a little too in the weeds, is that BuzzFeed made the decision to kind of like silo the news from the rest of the site. Whereas HuffPost, there are reporters and editors doing like journalism and news, but there's also like a huge uh, lifestyle team doing the stuff that gets like the traffic and the advertisers and doing affiliate links and all that stuff. And it's all kind of, it's all together on the homepage. There's no real distinction. Like this is HuffPost news. This is HuffPost, whatever beauty, you know, it's all one thing. There was to to Emily's point, there was some brand confusion. You know, sometimes, you know, HuffPost news did some amazing investigative work. And, but I, I would see, you know, people who don't work in media, don't really make the distinction would be like, Oh yeah, that's the site where they give us like lifestyle quizzes. Right. And And it was confusing to them (laughs) because it's kind of like under the same umbrella, but I don't think readers really understood the distinction necessarily. Right. But it seemed like there was more of a deliberate walling off or something at BuzzFeed News. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, so. and maybe, you know, initially it was, I mean, it was a reaction to the moment, I think. I mean, and I maybe a mistake. The You know, we, we, when we launched, we very deliberately kind of blurred the lines. And it was a moment when when Facebook, when, when, they, when this is a hard experience to remember, but people liked the idea that they had these new Facebook news feeds where baby pictures and news and silly memes were all mixed up together and all your, you know, all in one place, how fun. And as that grew really toxic and, and the sort of cultural perception of that new, of, of the news feed changed and the notion that like, wow, news is this fun thing that can be mixed up with other things started to seem insane. We tried to kind of pull the news brand away from the, um, fr- from the entertainment brand. I mean, there's also this, issue around like you know you can either try to sell advertising against news 
by kind of disguising it as something that isn't news and selling it against the lifestyle stuff. Or you can try to build a distinct news business by saying, well, we're reaching this influential audience that's a somewhat different and audience that you should pay more for. And I think the BuzzFeed sort of was attempting and didn't make it to, to, to sell that second to that second place. Which is which is the Axios business, right? You you try and sell an influence. It's the New York Times audience. business. Or, or it's, it's a semaphore business, ostensibly. It's a semaphore business. I think well, it's most well, the, successful no, news publishers. The, the difference between um, Axios and Semaphore on the one hand and the New York Times on the other is that the New York Times gets most of its money from subscription revenues. Like Axios is still out there, you know, playing on some level the traffic game, but it's at much higher CPMs and it's at a much more sort of targeted high, you know, elite audience. Um, so we can sort of maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, survive in the way that, um, you know, we're not playing the the sheer traffic game that like is the subject of your book and that Jonah Peretti and Nick Denton, who are the main subjects of your book, really were just like more eyeballs is more money. I need to maximize the number of humans who are reading my site, and that way I am going to make the most money, um, which I guess works. And doing journalism is just never going to be the most efficient way to produce content for eyeballs. Like it is, as, as Emily said, like way cheaper to just not check the facts and make it up, or um, to make yeah. or to make delightful roundups of memes. Yeah, I mean, you know, those are both just less expensive ways to get traffic, and if what you're trying to do is just sell traffic, which is, you know, that that's, you know, there's, you don't really have a choice, but to do it very inexpensively because the other thread running through the last 15 years is that, you know, I think the people early on who had discovered traffic felt like it was this digital commodity, like it was oil, they'd struck oil. The more you got, the more money you'd make. But the thing is, you know, as you know, Felix will no doubt at some point correct my or all, and Emma, like my attempt to all of you will correct my attempts to use the word <laughs> commodity. But I, I think scar- scarcity is a really important part of that. And you know, as as the as every as it turned out, traffic was you know there's almost an infinite amount of it. The, its value diminished, yeah. and 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 that's the other sort of thread running through this. I think that's true, but I will, in defense of the Gawker that I was no longer working at, um, they had a chief revenue officer named James Dell, who I think did really innovative things with for their revenue model. You know, they, they ended up having a big commerce business. They were one of the first digital publications to start doing native advertising and function as an agency on the back end of it. And they were profitable when Peter Thiel <laughs> sued them out of existence. Yeah, I mean, BuzzFeed was profitable yeah. in that same period with, mm. you know, with, with those same models. And Buzz, yeah. BuzzFeed was I, very purist in many ways. I remember, um, you know, the era of BuzzFeed when Jonah was adamant that there would be no banner ads. You know, everything would be native. Yeah, um, and then. In a way, like the fact that he hired you and spun up a news business is it was sign of a kind of romantic um, strain of how he was thinking, right? Like, there, was there a was there like a business yeah. reason to do news in the first place? What was Great his question. reason for doing that? So I think the business logic initially was very clear and bore out, which was that it was really important for the brand to move out of being seen as one of a number of kind of bottom of the internet meme sites. Like if you remember uh, the, the Nine Cheeseburger. Gag, Cheeseburger, Break.com. I mean, Nine Gag was the biggest. And those were sites that by, 
you know, 2015, 2016, 17 didn't exist anymore. Because partly because the social networks decided that they did not even have enough redeeming social value for Facebook and killed them. And so I think from a, I think in some sense, from a brand perspective, whether in that means brand to readers, it means brand to advertisers, it was really important. It kind of vaulted BuzzFeed into this totally different category of being a, you know, culturally relevant, you know, and, and, and the sort of most immediate kind of consequence of that is that the, you know, the platforms can treat you like a first class citizen as they did publishers, or they can treat you as spam and very important for any publisher that you're in that first category, even, even as that also diminished quite a bit in value. You, you cover this in the book, but I think you should explain to listeners why you moved out of traditional media and went to BuzzFeed. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, you know, I, I mean, I, I had been, never been, I hadn't been in exactly traditional media for a while. I had been a political reporter who basically saw what Elizabeth was doing at Gawker and started copying it in politics, um, you know, using the tools of blogging just to do straight reporting, but to do it incrementally, to do it fast, to do it on the internet. And then was at Politico when it started and we were the new thing and essentially professionalized these blogging tools. So it's like Politico and The Verge, I would say, did that in around like 20, 2007. Um, and, you know, as did Gawker, you know, in a less sort of, you know, not in any particular, but that was sort of the direction of travel was toward pro- turning these tools toward professional journalism. Um, and if, but if you were working at one of those sites in 2009, 2010, 2011, you could just feel the energy being sucked out of them by social media. And, and if you were watching your traffic, as I always was at Politico, you could just see that people had stopped coming to the blog and were over on Twitter and that the fun thing, you know, if you got a scoop, the cool thing to do is to watch it travel on Twitter. And so when Jonah kind of approached me with the idea of like, there's this new world where people are going to open up their desktop computers and type in facebook.com or twitter.com. And that's, and, and the challenge for content is going to be distributed on that plat- those platforms. Um, an era which is now over, but was then new. It just totally made intuitive sense to me. And that's kind of why I came to join him. Can we just talk for a second about, because you mentioned Jonah's overall plan and creating BuzzFeed News, which you could argue now looks like a mistake, but at the time made sense, as Ben has just laid it out. What about the decision to not do a deal with Disney? Disney was offering (laughs) so much money. I mean, that could have been the lifeline. Like HuffPost survived probably because it got bought by AOL and then it got bought by Verizon and, you know. It got those injections. I I, I don't ben know. Ben would have four yeah. vacation houses right now. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I mean, it yeah. wasn't a good financial decision. I mean, it was, I'm right. Those just RSUs like the, would have stacked. In, in the question of shareholder value, it was obviously just the stupidest <laughs> imaginable decision. Um, but but I guess jo- I think Jonah back to those days. Did at the time, though? I feel like at the time, people were yeah. like, this is this was like Mark Zuckerberg turning down $1 billion from Facebook. From, right. From right. Everybody whatever, was living you know? in the shadow of, of, of that story. Yes. Mark Zuckerberg yeah. turning down the first offer. Um, not like the sort of much more common story of Mark Cuban becoming a zillionaire for selling some company, everybody that never really had an audience that everyone is, you know, no one can remember what it was, which is how most of these Silicon Valley guys are rich. Um, the, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's right, but it's such a snapshot of the time. I mean, I, and one is that, is that we kind of thought we were ascendant, right? And that there was, we were just getting started and we'd been there for, I'd been there for less than two years when those conversations were happening. Um, and it felt like we just, the wind was at our back, mm-hmm. every, all the, everything was growing. Um, 
But I think more selfishly for Jonah and for me and for a lot of our colleagues, not not the president of the company, John Steinberg, and not, um, I'm sure, not our investors. You know, we felt like we were building this thing and doing work that was really exciting. And, and the prospect of essentially being plugged into Disney and to ABC News to help them figure out their websites just wasn't what we'd signed up for. And if we'd wanted to be sort of like employees of large corporations who were well compensated for helping them modernize, we would have chosen totally different career paths and have been different people. And so, like, I, I wasn't, I mean, none of us probably got into this to, um, you know, to, in a totally financially motivated way. It's the wrong profession for it. And so I think we made kind of non-financial and retrospectively just moronic decisions. So wind it forwards. Like, if you'd done it, if you'd said yes, like, the the stated reason for not doing it was like, Disney will, would have suffocated us. I mean, they would have done, right? Yeah, they would have. I mean, you know, the 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 other, the, in fact, there's, you don't have to sort of guess. They took that money and acquired Maker... Um, Maker Studios, and which was the sort of a middle, a YouTube middleman, basically, that was going to be their path to the internet, and it collapsed and no longer exists. I, I believe there was also a company they they sunk a bunch of money into called Fusion, which <laughs> I used to work for. And um, yeah, and, and, and I can tell you, as someone who works at Fusion, and this has been reported, you know, they did interfere and they did want to stick their oar in, you know, and you, it, it, there was a constant fight to stop, you know, being told what to do by people who presumably, like, you know, you exist because they don't know what's best, but they can never resist meddling. Yeah. And I guess the other example is Disney buying Nate Silver's 538 or buying oh, the, some the of- other media news. 538 is dying as well. Yeah. So yeah, the, this week Nate Silver said they weren't going to renew his contract, and everyone got laid off. And I guess Nate Silver is the one who has the rights to whatever models they use to do their big branded things around elections and sports. So like when he leaves, that leaves with him. So effectively, not really a thing anymore. Five thirty eight. So I guess Ben, what you're saying is either, or what Felix is kind of saying is either way. If you had done the Disney deal or not done the Disney deal, probably in the end, BuzzFeed would probably not exist in 2023 either way. Yeah, I mean, or BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed I, you news. know, it's hard to predict. Um, it's hard to predict, and we did an enormous amount of pretty ambitious independent journalism that I'm proud of doing. So I guess I, I don't have really regrets about it. Uh, ostensibly, there would still be a BuzzFeed, but it would be, which Disney princess are you, you know? Well, princess. that never went away. <laughs> they, they have that anyway. <laughs> I mean, people need to know. Yeah, or maybe, or maybe it would be a television yeah. show, you know, or maybe it, they would have successfully migrated the brand into some, into streaming in a way that you know, who knows? It's hard to, it's hard to know. We are going to have an ad-supported ad break from advertisers paying very high CPMs to podcasts because to podcasts and new blogs or something like that. Um, we will be back talking about Tucker Carlson being out at Fox News. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Should we talk about the Fox News? What's the Fox News? Well, that's the big news of the week. I thought it was going to be our top thing. The Fox News is, there's there's lots of it, actually. They were headed in, we didn't talk about the Dominion trial yet, did we? Yeah, we did. Um, we talked this, about that. With oh, we did. Okay, yeah. so we don't talk about that. The other Fox News is that out of nowhere, it seemed to us, they fired Tucker Carlson, who was the host of their biggest show, their 8 p.m. slot. They just, they they told him, they announced they were parting ways. They said his last show was last week. He didn't have the opportunity to say goodbye to anyone. And um, we're actually taping this. I will reveal to you that we're taping this on Wednesday. So it's been three days of a frenzy of news articles in which people said, this is the reason Tucker Carlson was fired. And there are many reasons that have been listed. The Dominion suit there, you know, because of the stuff Tucker Carlson said that was out there from the deposition. Or some are saying it's this Abby Grossberg suit. She was a producer on a show who filed um, a sexual harassment, hostile workplace lawsuit. And there's all kinds of details about how terrible it is to work on the Tucker Carlson show. Like, well, well, we're going to come to that. But let me just talk about the, the Dominion thing, because that one's really interesting. Apparently, Tucker's upset that, like, for, you know, he may or may not have been singled out um, for being fired in the context of a whole bunch of people like Maria Bartiromo and others who were just as um, conspiracy-minded in, in terms of what they put on the air. The big difference and the reason why Tucker Carlson was much worse for that suit than someone like Maria Bartiromo is not just that he was on at 8 p.m. It's because in order to win that suit, Dominion needed to show that they knew they were lying. It was malicious what they were doing to Dominion. And Maria Bartiromo, there's nothing on the record from her saying, this is all complete bullshit and I know that I'm lying. Whereas with Tucker, he's smart enough and or, and or dumb enough to have put it in writing that like he, he said that all of these people he was having on the show were complete lunatics and were off their tree. And yet he went on and put them on the air anyway. And that is what 
That's how you get to $787 million in damages. If you believe your lies, then that's not, then that's a, a defense. I mean, Carlson had Sidney Powell on the air and took her apart and used disgusting language to describe her in private emails. And and actually, I mean, one of I think all of these, ex, there are many very fun explanations for why Fox fired Tucker Carlson, none of which really make any sense. No, but the best explanation of all, or at least the one that Emily, Emily and I love the most, is this was all done as a way of Rupert Murdoch getting back at his ex-fiancee. That he, remember he was he was like engaged for two weeks to Leslie Ann Smith and she thought literally thought that Tucker Carlson was sent by God as a prophet and so the minute he breaks up with Leslie Ann Smith um, Rupert Murdoch does not do like amicable splits so he just goes all out and so he fires Leslie Ann's favorite host just to just you know as part of the divorce which when they were never even married. I mean, none. Which, but the problem is, he had broken up with her sometime before, a couple weeks before. He had said misogynistic things for a very long time. He had been insubordinate for a very long time. Somebody woke up Sunday morning and decided to fire him. And part of the problem is that there's a number of sort of official-sounding leaks out of Fox about how there were meetings and how they had thoughtful conversations and they care about this or they care about that. And they just lie so much. I mean, you think they lie on the air. Like their communications department just is the least reliable element of American media. And so you've got to assume that most of the anonymous sources are lying when you read stories about Fox. There there was a... A story that Irina Brigante, who's the very powerful, you know, head of PR at Fox, has a dossier on Carlson that if he, you know, says anything negative about the network or goes to a competitor or does anything antagonistic, they're just going to release. Does that sound plausible to you? Do you think that there's something no, that we, that's we don't know nonsense. about Carlson that's <laughs> going to be worse? I mean, sure, whatever. But, I mean, they just go around making inane (laughs) threats against each other all the time. That just seems like obvious nonsense. There was a lawsuit. There was discovery. I I mean, of course they have a dossier of stupid things they've all said to each other. But that that just struck me as, like, the most sort of obvious theatrical BS that the Fox people put out to make themselves look like they have power. Like these executives, Suzanne Scott, Irina Briganti, who are you know, totally helpless while the inmates run the asylum. And then occasionally Rupert wanders in and makes autocratic decisions and then he wanders out again. And then they try to explain it like it's a normal company. Interesting. I like that. What about, there was a, a journal story earlier this week that basically was like, actually, Tucker Carlson maybe got the ratings, but he didn't have any of the top tier advertisers. No one wanted to be associated with that show except the My Pillow guy, basically, and a few other people. Um, and yeah. I guess... His ratings were even slipping, and they said some show called The Five, which I think I only am aware of because I watch Saturday Night Live sometimes, um, was actually beating it. Um, so he he perhaps wasn't as big of a ratings draw as is he is thought to be. Yeah, I mean, it's been a slow news cycle. And so <laughs> sort of softer shows, I mean, until yeah. this week, really. And so for the last several months, softer shows have been outperforming hard news sort of across, you know, I mean, it makes sense. We've been all watching Succession rather than CNN. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, like it's, it's much more. So, so I, I just, I mean, it, I mean, there are all these, there are all these true facts that are reasons that Tucker Carlson, as an employee of any of our companies, you know, would have been fired. It's just that the notion that, but also they they fired him 
on 10 minutes notice on a Monday morning. I mean, it's just not, I mean, they're trying to repackage this as some normal corporate decision in what is obviously a totally bizarre family business that operates, that does not operate in a normal That's the best take of all. So so you just attribute it to... Rupert yeah, being it's, it's, it's Rupert being being Logan Roy and capricious. He broke off his engagement. He he was in, he got engaged two weeks ago. Broke off the engagement <laughs> in an email. He announced that his two public companies were merging several months ago. Decided actually never mind. I mean under some pressure. The um there's a it just seems like you have a 92 year old making some decisions at a rapid pace. Ben, when are you going to publish this take about... because it's the best one yet? <laughs> I, yeah. No, we published no, it. Max Tani yeah. wrote it. It's, it's um, the truth. Yeah. Let, let, let me ask you about um, <laughs> the power of Fox to create um, Tucker Carlson's. Like we have, we have a long history of these kind of people. There was Glenn Beck. There was Bill O'Reilly. There was even like Megyn Kelly for a hot second. There was Tucker Carlson. Every time, you know, each of these people feels very big. Jack Schaefer has a good column about this. And then they go, and then they, and then there's someone new, and it's just the caravan moves on. Do we expect that? Murdoch and Suzanne Scott and the people in charge of Fox News still have the power to install someone in that 8 p.m. slot and like make them the you know this huge ratings hogging star or is that are those days waning too? Of course they do. I mean, they, they, you know, their audience is the oldest of the of the old cable news audiences, and it's folks who, you know find their content by speaking aloud to their remote. They're not people who are gonna download an app and follow you to your new platform. It's just not that generation of users. Um, And I think the clearest evidence of that is that they launched a streaming service called Fox Nation that totally bombed, despite it being called Fox Nation and marketed incessantly on Fox. Yeah, they're just gonna wheel in some other person. It doesn't doesn't really matter because it's all, they have the built-in audience at Fox News, people will tune in. Doesn't really matter who's in the chair. And it's not like we'll miss Tucker Carlson's distinctive journalism where he had stories no one else had, right? I mean, they'll find some other personality who'll say some other kind of off-the-wall things to appeal to the same audience. Yeah, they'll find somebody who that audience likes. I suspect, though, usually they're broadcasters or Republican Party apparatchiks who are, you know, entertaining and colorful and say things that you know, lots of people object to, but are not like fun, to, but also care a lot about winning elections for Republicans and care a lot about the Murdoch company bottom line. I don't think Tucker really cared about winning elections for Republicans. Like he was leading an insurgency out of the Republican mm-hmm. Party. He was inviting Victor Orban onto the show. He was like, didn't he go he to Hungary and something. do like he an was, entire he was, week from Budapest? Yes. Yeah. He was, he was sort of driving a message, like a very explicit racist message that, you know, I think, I I, I guess, I mean, there's obviously a a dispute, like, is Trump just the embodiment of the Republican Party or is he an outlier? Like, Tucker was the Trump of Fox Mm -hmm. and will be replaced by the DeSantis of Fox, like somebody who looks and who says some of the same words but basically just wants to cut taxes. He famously gave a talk at a dinner for Orban where he said, you know, I love you guys because you hate all the right people. And everyone instantly knew what he meant. <laughs> yeah, but that was also the Gorka crew. You know, they they all bonded over who they hated as well. And as long as you hated the right pe- people, you you would fit right in at Gorka. Uh, it depended on the Gawker editor, but. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but we should. Um, 
Yeah, the, yeah Elizabeth Spires predates the, the era of Gorka editors having large staff who needs to, to get on. It was just a one-woman show at that point. We need one more ad break because we are ad-supported, except for you lovely Slate Plus folks. We love you very much. You give us our beautiful subscription revenue, which helps diversify our revenue. After these ads, we're going to have the numbers round. Let's have a numbers round. Um, Emily, did you bring a number? I did. I brought a number. My number is 69. Ha ha. A billion dollars. <laughs> Um, that was or is the Microsoft bid for Activision, but this week that bid, which was already kind of under fire in the U.S. by the FTC, um, we learned this week that British regulators blocked the bid, um, and now it's looking kind of sketch if it goes through or not. And this is a big deal, literally a big deal. One of the, I think, the biggest tech deal since like AOL Time Warner. So. That didn't end well either, so we'll you see, see how this goes. You see, the Brits, first they scupper Barclays buying Lehman Brothers, and then they scupper Microsoft buying Activision. <laughs> All of these things, you can just blame the Brits. Well, Microsoft's um, going to fight it, so it's not over. Yeah. Yet. It, yeah, but it'll, we'll see. My number is 14, and that's the number of years Gawker was in business before Peter Thiel put it out of business, which I just want to point out is four years longer then Peter Thiel's hedge fund Clarium Capital is in business after it famously imploded and Gawker wrote about it. So Noted. Yeah, we we there is a pretty compelling um, story that the thing that Peter Thiel hated about Gawker was the reporting on Clarium much more than the reporting on him being gay, which is yes. why everyone thinks that he was annoyed at Gawker. Yes, that, that's um, my theory too. My my number, since we're, we're being a bit newsy, is $19 billion. This is yet another bank, mini, mini bank crisis week. The bank in crisis this week is First Republic. And one of the interesting things about First Republic was people thought that it wasn't a Silicon Valley bank in terms of the assets on its balance sheet. It didn't have a whole bunch of bonds that were underwater. Turns out it had a bunch of mortgages that were underwater. They were lending a bunch yeah, of like interest-only mortgages to people, which uh, and they were like lending money to the president of Goldman Sachs. And and, and like yeah, that the president of Goldman Sachs is probably borrowing money from you because you're giving him a really good deal. And the mortgage portfolio was nineteen billion dollars lower than its book value, and they only had core regulatory capital of $14 billion. So they basically, the First Republic um, problem is exactly the same as the Silicon Valley Bank problem, which is that their capital can't keep up with the mark-to-market losses on their fixed income portfolio. It's just their fixed income portfolio, instead of being agency MBS, is actual mortgages to human beings. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I suspect that next week on Slate Money we'll be talking more about First Republic Bank um, ben Smith, what's your number? Yeah, so I brought a number from the from the from the distant past, and so you know, in the media business, which is that I one of the things that struck me in reporting out this book is um, the that the, the CPM's Gawker CPM meaning uh, cost for a thousand views, which is the you know the the sort of standard um, price sheet of a for for digital media in two thousand and three when Gawker started selling advertising was nine dollars. Um, and if you're sort of familiar with the business, that's like today, 
like a little on the high end, like, but you know, like if you're getting that on, on, you know, on a sort of standard issue website, that's like pretty good. Um, but if you're trying to sell scale, if you're Buzzfeed or something like that and what's sort of amazing, I mean, it just shows you like, you know, they, it, it was, it, it's, it's essentially declined in value. It's, it's a, something that has declined in value since they started telling it in 2003. But in 2003, you know, when, when Elizabeth was running Gorka in 2003, it was deliberately being marketed as a website for the Manhattan elite. Like, you had that elite audience at the time. Or you yeah, also, there was, I, I want to point out, because this is uh, early Gawker, you know, uh, craziness there was no real ad serving platform in 2000 late 2002 early 2003 and nobody was buying ads on blogs because there were no commercial blogs and so nick put up like a fake corcoran banner that just linked to the corcoran website it wasn't a real ad but the idea was that it would signal that that space was available and sure enough yeah. somebody from douglas elliman called like a couple of months in and was like how much for that spot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and ju- but just to think of it's right. It's incredible, but also just to think that they invented this very, very rudimentary business. And you would have, in any normal world, thought, "Wow, like as we get better at this and more sophisticated, and the market grows, like these numbers are going to go up." And instead, <laughs> they went true. down. Yeah, we we really need to get John Battelle on the show because he is the guy who really understands the economics of banner ads better than anyone in the world. And he is very guilty about it. He's like, I I should never have invented that ad server. It was the worst thing I ever did for the (laughs) ecology of the internet. But what what your number reminds me of, Ben, is the famous thing that, like, you know, back in the 1930s, the New Yorker was paying its writer, like, $1 a word. And you know, that dollar a word freelance rate has basically stood s- still for 90 years. Like, these things don't go up. Yeah. Um, tough business. Tough, tough business. Um, thanks for joining us, Ben. It's been amazing having you on this, sh- on this show. It, it's really so fun to talk to you, all, all, all you know, fellow veterans of that era about we're, it. We're all ex-bloggers. I don't know how many... Um, you know, podcasts there are these days where everyone is an ex-blogger. Emily's looking at us like, no, Emily's me. like, I'm not, not a blogger. blogger. I'm a proper journalist. Do you not self-identify as a blogger, Emily? Emily used to work for the Wall Street Journal. She never blogged. <laughs> um, I mean, I technically blogged at the Wall Street Journal, but I don't think that counts. <laughs> count it. Count it. Count it. <laughs> Um, thanks to Patrick for, for producing. Thanks to all of you for writing in. Let us know what you want to know about First Republic next week on Money at Slate.com. And we'll be back on Monday with the next episode of Slate Money Succession. <laughs>